All right, we can turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 17 this morning. Uh, Verses 5 through 13, as we look at the merging of religion and state part 2 this morning, continuing our look at this really fascinating revelation that John received on the island of Patmos, uh, if you'll remember, in about 95 AD or AD 95 to say it the correct way anyway. Uh, and we studied these things. We spent a lot of time actually studying the right, the time of the writing of the book of Revelation uh, way back when we introduced the book because it's, uh, it's an important point to understand, particular, particularly when it comes to Revelation 17 and 18, uh, when this book was written. So why, well, why would that be? What difference does it make about this? Well, the uh, Reformed theologian or the Covenant theologian will say, well, this book, the book of Revelation, was written in about 60 to 65 uh, because it is describing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans that happened in AD 70. Therefore, it had to have been written before then. However, uh, when we read and understand the, the words on the page, we see that, well, what is being described here doesn't really match up with history, doesn't match up with the events that actually took place. And so uh, it's kind of talking about the future. It has to be talking about the future. If it isn't something that we can look at the words on the page and say this, this, and this matches perfectly with what is being said here. Well, then if it didn't happen in the past, then it's got to be in the future. So in this section, John is being told about a world government that is actually going to exist during the tribulation period. And like we saw in uh, Sunday school this morning, a lot of these elements that are being described here are already in the works. They're already uh, taking place. And this is really the, uh, the coming together of religion and state in this one world superpower that has governance over the entire world. And so what John is talking about here in Revelation 17 and 18 is really the the uh, the ending point, if you will, the culmination of the tribulation period and the culmination of what is known as the age of the Gentiles in uh, the scriptures. God is here destroying Uh, Satan's power over this world. You realize that Satan is the one in charge of this world, right? He's called the prince and power of the air. He's He's the ruler over things that are happening on this earth. That doesn't take away one bit from God's sovereignty, uh, and these kinds of things. Obviously, Satan doesn't have complete control over every one of us and, and these kinds of things, but he most certainly is working in the governments of the world. 
And he is going to work completely and fully in this one world government that is going to be in place during the tribulation and will uh, find its ultimate power and example in this city of Babylon that is being described here. This city, Babylon, is going to be the perfect coming together or merging of religion and state. And as we saw in our articles today, those things are already happening. It's already moving in that direction. And why would that be? Well, the Bible tells us why that would be. And John himself is the one who wrote about it. He told us that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. When he wrote 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Remember that? Uh, another point of Sunday school, uh, the study of Proverbs says if Proverbs chapter 2 says, if we go to the Lord, he will give us discernment. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. That's having discernment. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. John saying there, yeah, it's going to come in the future, and be dominant in this world, but it's already here. It's already here setting the stage, if you will. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's some encouragement for you. Do you get overwhelmed when you see the world going down the toilet, particularly our country, uh, just rushing headlong into all of these things? Well, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of Error. So when we get overwhelmed by seeing these things taking place before, before our very eyes, be encouraged because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You, you can overcome the world because Christ already did it for you. And so in our study of the book of Revelation, of course, we're in that portion that describes the tribulation period, the things which will take place after these things. We've seen the seal judgments. We've seen the trumpet judgments. We've even seen the bowl judgments and the intermissions that come in between them describing the other events. And now we find ourselves kind of uh, like we described before in the post-game show. The bowl judgments have been poured out. and Now we're going to get some real detail about what actually took place 
uh, during those bold judgments and uh, particularly at the end. And here, last time, we kind of uh, have introduced this harlot that is riding on the beast, and we've seen that, uh, that it is describing the city uh, called Babylon, verse 18 of Revelation 17, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The woman riding on this beast is the city of Babylon. And so now there are two two real characters, if you will, in this revelation that John is receiving. The woman riding the woman is one and the beast that she is riding on is the other. And today we will get more into uh, a, the description of the beast, the details concerning the coming satanic kingdom. Last time we began uh, this the merging of religion and state by looking at the mystery. There's a great uh, misunderstanding about that term mystery and how it relates to Babylon here and the woman riding on the beast. A lot of commentators will try to convince us that the name on her forehead is Mystery Babylon. And so therefore, well, we can just make it mean whatever we want because after all, it's a mystery. Uh, and that, of course, is very wrong uh, understanding of this passage. So on her forehead, a name was written, A Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth is her name. And we, so we spent some time last time looking at dispensationalism and why would people who call themselves dispensationalists not understand this? Why would they uh, misinterpret her name and therefore what is being described here? Where do kind of all these different ideas come from? And we saw that, well, dispensationalists uh, can be wrong sometimes. They can use dispensationalism as a lens to interpret the Bible rather than understanding that dispensationalism is a system of theology that results from how we interpret the Bible. So if even though we're a dispensationalist, we still have to read the words on the page and understand what they're saying. We don't just get to make things up because we're dispensationalists. That's a, that's a very wrong uh, way to approach the Bible. The Bible is God's word written to us and we read it and interpret it correctly to form our theology. It isn't the other way around. We don't make our theology and then make the Bible fit with what we believe. That is completely wrong. We get what we believe from the Bible. The Bible forms our beliefs. And I believe that that uh, using dispensationalism as a lens leads to problems, particularly in this in this passage. So and we got most of that information. Hopefully it shows up. Eh, it does. It works perfectly. I I read an article uh, from Dr. Chris Cohn. His website is drcohn.com if you really want to get into some 
Theology. That's a great uh, website to go to. Here's the article that he wrote on this kind of an idea, the double-edged sword of dispensationalism, destructive as methodology, constructive as outcome. So that's, that's a theology professor's way of saying that it's destructive if we consider ourselves dispensationalists and then use that to form what we think about the Bible. That's the methodology. That's, that's destructive. That is wrong. That's what everybody else does. And we shouldn't do that. Instead, we need to view dispensationalism as an outcome. When we do that, then it's very constructive. Dispensationalism is the outcome of consistently interpreting the Bible correctly. And so when, when we do that, we come up with these ideas that, oh, the woman riding on the beast is a city, just like it says in verse 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth, and her name is Babylon, the great. And of course, this uh, plays out in many other passages. I don't think he addresses Revelation 17 at all, but he does some other areas. And it's a fascinating article if you really want to engage your brain for a few minutes uh, while, you, uh, while you read it. And so, uh, yes, using dispensationalism as a lens is destructive for us, just the same way that uh, Reformed theology as a lens to understand the Bible is uh, destructive or it has consequences. When we do that, when we misinterpret the Bible, there are a number of consequences. For one, we aren't properly understanding what God is telling us. That, that's a problem. <laughs> that's an issue. God revealed his word to us so that we would understand things about him. If we're misinterpreting it, we're not understanding what he's saying. That's a problem. It can also cause, cause us to misinterpret the events that are happening in the world today and can bring disrepute to God and to his word. So when you hear about, uh, oh, what was the guy's name? Camping, uh, Harold Camping, telling everybody that, oh, the rapture is next month, so sell everything you have and go to the hills and just wait for God. And lo and behold, it didn't happen. And uh, that causes disrepute to come upon God and his word. When we misinterpret current events, it causes stress in people's lives. And so we're using God's word to cause stress. And that's exactly the opposite of what God's word is supposed to do. It is intended to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so uh, this isn't this article, the outcomes of this article, it's not just for seminaries. It's not just for uh, theologians and kind of nerdy people who don't have anything better to do than read books. Uh, it's for all of us. These things have real implications for, for you and for me in our lives. Uh, and so we looked at this idea of mystery, kind of trying to, to 
prove more fully that mystery is not part of the title. If it were, it would be being used as an adjective. And the term mystery is nowhere else in the Bible used as an adjective. It's always used as a noun, as it is here. It is a mystery that is on her forehead, Babylon. And oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you what the mystery is. Verse 7, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman on the beast. Uh, And then we looked at the various mysteries uh, in the New New Testament. The mystery of Babylon being one of them. The, The mystery that Babylon is going to be the place where the one world government is headquartered. And then we saw furthermore that Babylon cannot possibly be Rome or Roman Catholicism even because Babylon, the great, this woman riding on the beast is the mother of harlots. It is the the progenitor of harlotry, false religion. And that in fact is in Babylon as we saw last time by looking at Genesis chapter 11, Nimrod uh, building the city of Babel or Babylon. It's the same, same place. And this idea that they kind of don't need God. They can build a tower. We can make ourselves God. We can go up to a high place just like God is. And we can make ourselves God. It was kind of the idea. And every time that there is a, a, this uh, misunderstanding of who God is and who we as humans are in relation to God, there's going to be a, a problem of immorality. And that's exactly what we see in all of the false religions, kind of the, the pagan religions of the world that came into existence when God confused the languages at Babel and people spread out throughout the world, we see these towers all over the, the globe, actually, that people used to worship uh, after spreading out from Babylon. And I meant this one is in Mexico that I mentioned last time, uh, the, the uh, Cortez, the Spanish conqueror, if you will, of Latin and South America. You can read his accounts of of the the sacrificing of humans and throwing them off of this tower and these kinds of things uh, fits very well with the Tower of Babel. This is an uh, artist's rendition of the Tower of Babel, by the way. Uh, Inventing a religion always, always, always results in immorality. Here was one in Korea. Here's one in Indonesia. These things are all over the world, not to mention the, the great pyramids, of course. As Just as the Bible says, false religion spread throughout the entirety of the planet. It didn't originate in Rome. It didn't originate with the Roman Catholic religion and therefore cannot be what is being described here Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. No, in fact, it began in Babylon, as the Bible describes, spread throughout the world. The Israelites were 
uh, subject to it as well. And uh, it even it did come. I believe that elements of it are present in Roman Catholicism that we that goes along with these pyramids and this false religion that is spread throughout the world as this kind of mother-child cult. And you don't see it so much in America, but go to Europe, go to Latin America, South America, and you will very much see in Catholic churches that Mary is the is the seems to be in their artwork anyway, the main subject, and she's always pictured holding a baby Jesus that goes uh, very much in line with these uh, religions that we talked about last time throughout the entire world, the Chinese, the Germans, the South Americans, all over the world has this idea of a uh, mother-child cult that oftentimes ends in sacrificing your children, uh, much like people in America today are doing to our great detriment. And so that brings us to the mountains that are described beginning uh, in, with verse 6. Notice uh, what is being spoken of here. So there, there certainly is a religious aspect to what is being described here in Revelation 18, but it isn't only it's not, or Revelation 17. We shouldn't divide these two chapters into, oh, 17 is religion and 18 is economic Babylon. Yes, there is an element to it, but there is, but it is in totality describing Babylon in both chapters. That's a much better way to uh, look at look at this. The main point is that there is a city coming in the future where there, which will be the headquarters of a satanic power, a satanic world empire. And this empire is being depicted in the beast. Notice uh, verse 6 of Revelation 17. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly, and the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So we see that this that the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And this fits very well with what we've already seen in uh, Revelation, if you'll remember back to the fifth seal, there was a great martyrdom that took place. People are in the tribulation period are going to be uh, killed because of the word of God and because of their testimony <laughs> of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And we've also already seen that people who refuse the mark of the beast, they're not just going to lose their job or be kicked off Twitter. No, they're going to lose their head. They're going to lose their life. There's going to be massive amounts of people who are dying because of their testimony to Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ. And this is going to make 
uh, the city drunk with derangement, if you will. And the leaders and the, the, the people of the city will be drunk with this power that they have over other people and by thinking that they are eradicating God uh, from the world. That's, that's basically the mission here. And of course, we already see this taking place in the world today. They're, the powers that be do everything they can to keep God the God of the Bible, anyway, out of public view and shame anyone who, who tries to uh, bring out the God of the Bible. So just imagine the reaction of the people in power today if, if they had this kind of uh, ability. And uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I personally can certainly see that they would be drunk with this kind of, of power. It would control them. It would control their thinking. It would drive them to do it more. That's the, the reason for the imagery of, of drunkenness in, in this regard. It, uh, alcohol makes people act out of, their, out of their minds, do things that they wouldn't normally do. Well, power over people and power over people's lives does the same thing to people. Uh, as it's been said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. This is, this is what is being described here. Absolute power over people's lives and their death. And it is causing drunkenness in, essentially, in the city of Babylon. And this is what is going to happen in the tribulation period. This idea of eradicating God and replacing him with the Antichrist. Remember, that's what the, the worship system is going to be, the worship of the Antichrist, uh, who is uh, raised from the dead, essentially. He is going to become the focus of worship rather than the God of the Bible, and that will lead to uh, violence and suppression of thought. And that's what false religion does. False religion always, always, always ends in suppression of thought. Uh, to use the language of the Constitution, the freedom of speech is taken away from people when the governmental powers have a false religion guiding them. And it leads to violence. It leads to death of those who will not submit to the system. True religion, biblical Christianity, uh, I hesitate to even call it a religion because religion has such a, 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 in my mind at any rate, a bad idea that goes along with it, religion remind, just reminds me of works and, and what we do to be right with God, where the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible is what God did for us, and we trust in what it says. That's biblical Christianity. But, and, and biblical Christianity recognizes the fact that all people are created in God's image, and we are therefore autonomous beings who have a free will. We can think and we can let our thoughts be known to others 
if we uh, so desire. We have the ability to think in reason and are therefore accountable to a holy God. That's what biblical Christianity is. People need to hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and believe the gospel in order to be right with this holy God. And that, that's, that's what biblical Christians believe. Adherence to true biblical Christianity allow others to be free people. That's just how it goes. Free to live and reject God and face the consequences. That's part of the deal. Uh, and that's why we ought to be motivated to give people the truth so that they do not uh, suffer the consequences of rejecting God. But we do not force people to believe. That isn't biblical Christianity. Forcing someone to believe is not recognizing that they are an autonomous, uh, free person with the necessity of having to make a decision to trust God for their salvation. Forcing someone to believe is not, they're not believing if you're forcing them to do it. And of course, we, we do not uh, physically harm unbelievers because they won't believe. That's ridiculous. That's not biblical uh, Christianity in any way shape or form. We don't execute unbelievers because of their unbelief. Like religions do. Like this religion that we're learning about that is uh, being formed today in the world and will be fully formed in the tribulation period. That's exactly what they do. They control people's thoughts. They control people's actions and they kill them if they don't agree with the satanic powers and the satanic worship of the Antichrist. And that is what is being portrayed here for John, particularly in verse 6, that, that this city is absolutely drunk with the power over life and death in people's lives. True Christianity has nothing to do with this. And notice that there, there is no reason for John to wonder uh, about this uh, vision that he is having or about these things that he is seeing. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So one of the problems of Bible interpretation is just taking verses out of context and building our beliefs off of, of one verse like, or even one phrase like mystery Babylon. Uh, well, oh, it's, it's mystery Babylon. So therefore, uh, buy my book, watch my video, and I will tell you what the mystery is. When if we just keep reading, the Bible tells us what the mystery is. Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. And then in verse 8, he begins to do that. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not 
and will come. And so obviously, this isn't uh, super easy language that is being used here, and the overall concept can get kind of confusing, like uh, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Wow, we got to kind of slow down and figure, figure out what that means, and that's, that's good. That's, that's a, uh, we don't uh, worship um, a thing of our own making that's on a shelf like the pagans do. Uh, we worship a very complex God. And so when we come to complex parts of the Bible, that ought to make us happy rather than sad. Oh, I'll never understand this. Well, just keep trying. And if we don't understand everything about God, well, that's okay too. Because if we, we can certainly understand everything about a bird that we carved out of wood. That's not much of a God. A God that perhaps there's some wonder and amazement, that's, that's a little more powerful, at least in my, my line of thinking anyway. Uh, now this beast that was and is not and is about to come against a lot of people, particularly in early Christianity, said, well, oh, this is talking about Nero. Because Nero was the emperor uh, early uh, in the 60s AD when John was alive, part of the time at least when John was alive, and he was killed. And uh, so he must be going to come back to life, and then he is going to uh, rule over this coming empire. And that is a wonderful example of newspaper exegesis first century style, looking at current events and then uh, taking those current events and plugging them back into the Bible and saying, oh, this is that thing that we're seeing. Rather than reading all of the, the information from the scriptures and then looking at current events and saying that this matches with what the Bible is telling me two very different, uh, two very different ideas, uh, and so this is called the Nero Redivivus theory, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce that in Latin. I'm not a fluent Latin speaker, so the Nero Redivivus theory is that Nero is dead, and he's going to rise again and come and be the one who rules over this coming empire. Nero is the ruler of, was the ruler of Rome, not Babylon, so it doesn't match with uh, the, the scriptures that we see here. This is not talking about Nero. And that would be kind of along the lines of a historicist uh, interpretation an idealist interpretation is when they see, oh, the beast was and is not and is about to come. Oh, this is just the turning over of, of world empires. You know, they come, they rise to power, they fall, and then they come again. That This is just the cycles of life is what's being described here. But they don't really give you any other explanation or an explanation that fits with reality anyway about the rest of the details that are 
that are here. So the idealist or spiritual interpretation uh, just doesn't fit with the overall context of, of what's being described. And that's true throughout all of Revelation, really, not just uh, this particular passage. So what is being described here? Well, it's the coming world leader, the Antichrist, the first beast, if you will. And there is, the, there is an intimate coming together of the ruler and the kingdom, the king and the kingdom. A lot of times they're, they're almost inseparable in the way that they are described, very similar to Jesus Christ and the messianic kingdom that is to come after all of this tribulation is over. Jesus will come again as king to rule over his kingdom, and he is inseparable from his kingdom. King and kingdom go together perfectly. There is no kingdom without the king ruling over his kingdom on this earth. There is no satanic kingdom without the satanic, satanically empowered king to rule over it. And so this is describing, I believe here, giving us a detail about the, the Antichrist that we have already seen back in Revelation 13. If you'll remember, describing the first beast, the dragon, Revelation 13:1, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, Satan. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? The beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Revelation 17, 8 says, those who dwell on the earth were amazed by him. That's exactly what was described in Revelation 13 concerning this coming world ruler. The unbelieving earth dwellers are going to marvel at the Antichrist as he is raised from the dead. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. Satan gives his authority to the Antichrist. He takes it. The whole world is amazed by the fact that this person has been raised from the dead and he's now, of course, elevated to ruler over the entire earth. And notice something about these earth dwellers. It gives a detail there whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. These will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Their names have not been written in the book since the foundation of 
the world. Notice that uh, this, or remember the fact that this is in the future, what John is seeing here. This is during the tribulation period. And it is a way of referring to these unbelievers. Again, don't just take one verse. Oh, these people, uh, people's names weren't written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Therefore, God has a book over here that he, he knows uh, in this book, he just takes people's names out of it before they've had a chance to, to live. He picks who's saved and who's not saved. Those whose names he aren't in this book are condemned to hell forever. He, he allows them to be born and they're just fodder for the fire, essentially. That's what you could come away with if you only investigate this idea of the book from this one verse. And you forget that it's looking into the future. Notice those words carefully. Whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And we've already studied this concept in our uh, study of the book of Revelation, back in Revelation 3 and verse 5, this same book is mentioned. But there are just some things to, to uh, remember about God and uh, who he is and what his desire is for people. And the concept, we, or the, I, the answer to this question of the book of life and whose name is in it and whose name is not in it, the conclusion that we came to the last time we studied this was that all people's names, whoever is going to live, their name is in this book originally. And then people's names are taken out of the book. We find that in other, in other scriptures that we will get to here shortly. Remember that God wants all people's names in that book. When the books are read at the end, his desire is for all people to be there, for him to enjoy life eternally with all people. Where do we get that from? Well, 2 Peter 3, 9 for 1, The Lord is not slow, about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, dispensationalism is more than uh, just uh, understanding who the beast is and the seven heads and ten horns and the tribulation and all of these things. It has to do with our very salvation as well. The words on the page are important everywhere, not just in prophecy stuff. He's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants every person to be saved. If he has a list of people uh, who aren't going to be saved, who have no chance at repentance, who have 100% chance of perishing without him, why would he say this in 2 Peter 3.9? That doesn't make sense to me. Why would he die for the sins of the entire world if he did not desire for every person 
to be saved. First John 2.2, 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We don't need to invent a meaning for the whole world and say, oh, well, that obviously means the whole world of the elect. That can't mean the whole world. But it, that's what it says. <laughs> it says the whole world. Jesus Christ died for the sins of every single person who has ever lived, is living now, who will live in the future. All of them. That's why it was dark for three hours on the cross when Jesus was on the cross paying the penalty for the sins of the world. Imagine that. Imagine the suffering and the pain of taking the punishment of every sin of every person who's ever lived on to you. That would be unbearable. That's what Jesus Christ did so that God and we can freely offer with a completely clear conscience the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ to any person that you come in contact with. Because God wants them to all be saved. The names are erased from the book based on the rejection of Christ and his payment for your sins. That's what we see in Revelation 3, 5. That's what we saw uh, when we studied this the last time. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. We read... uh, I think it was in Sunday school about overcoming. We overcome by faith in the one who has overcome for us. That's Jesus Christ. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. In other words, if you don't overcome, if you don't put your faith in the one who overcame for you, Jesus Christ, then your name will be erased from the book. If you do overcome, your name will not be erased from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In Psalm 69, David, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is uh, kind of an imprecatory prayer, if you will, a prayer against his enemies. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous, another example of names being in the book. Everybody's name is originally in the book, taken out when they reject Christ and they face the consequences of that. So as we did before, we can uh, conclude that everyone's name is in the book originally. This is describing what's being described here is the book of life. It's a book of life. Every person who has life is in the book. They are taken out uh, when they reject Christ. Of course, God is omniscient. Of course, he knows all things. Of course, he knows who is going to trust in him, who is going to be saved, and who is not going to be saved. But his knowledge of that does not determine the outcome. Uh, This doesn't mean that people are either saved or condemned based on God's knowledge. People are either saved or condemned based on whether or not they have believed. If memory serves, 
from the book of John. John 3.17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because God has a list and your name isn't on the list. You're on the naughty list. You're not on the nice list. No, that's not what it says. He is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. There is one requirement for you and for me to have life, and it is belief, trust in Christ and his payment for your sins. We don't ever need to uh, compromise on that biblical truth. All people are created in God's image and that God died, sent the son to die for the sins of all mankind. And therefore we all have a decision to make. The most important decision we are ever faced with. Will we accept God's offer of salvation and have eternal life? Or will we think like these do that we know better? We know better. Uh, this Antichrist, whoever he may be, is risen from the dead, and I, I'm trusting in him. I'm trusting in his mark. I'm trusting in his economic system. This uh, religious system that is coming in the world, I'm trusting in wokeism to be right with the universe. Good luck. That's exactly the opposite of what the scriptures tell us to believe in. And there will be consequences to that. But every person is autonomous before God created in his image. We all have that decision to make. And the consequences are life and death, as is described in Revelation and so many other places in the Bible. Next, notice finally the mountains, the name of the, the point that we're that we're actually describing. Now, what are these mountains that are being uh, talked about here? Why do you wonder? Verse 7, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. In other words, the, the king and kingdom is are one and this this beast is going to be headed up by the, the Antichrist who will live, die, and be raised again. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And here we go again with another, just pull that verse out of the context and now say, oh, we need to find a city. Oh, suddenly, the, suddenly now the woman is a city and we need to find a city uh, that is, has seven hills in it. And Rome fits the bill. There you go again. Uh, so, well, is the woman the Pope? Is the woman the Roman Catholic religion? Or is the Ro woman a city now? Now we're saying the woman is a city and we got to find one with seven hills and then we can make it Rome. That, 
That is completely the wrong way to interpret the Bible. You have to see the entire passage. Each verse doesn't stand alone. It's all in a context. And he goes on. Oh, the very next phrase, as a matter of fact, tells us that it is, we don't need to be looking for a city with seven hills. Verse 10, and they are seven kings. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. So this idea, we talked about this last time, this idea of mountains being kings or kingdoms is is very much biblical. That's what was described in Daniel 2, the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, a stone cut without hands comes out of heaven, hits that uh, statue, knocks it to pieces, and the stone becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. This is not describing Rome, as we have made the point to say. Rome happens to supposedly have seven hills. Uh, you know, there's more than seven hills in Rome. I guess it determined you have to figure out which one is the hills. There's a place in Cincinnati called Seven Hills also. Uh, but it doesn't even say hills. It says mountains, and there aren't any mountains in Rome. I, I've seen it. Uh, seven heads are seven mountains, in other words, seven kings or kingdoms. And then he says in verse 10, the, se- the seven heads are representative of seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And so there are seven kings or kingdoms that specifically have to do with what is being described here. Seven kings or seven kingdoms that are intimately entwined in world history with the nation of Israel, with Bible things. That's what is being uh, described here for us. These are, uh, and we can go back into world history And we can see that uh, this is exactly the way history has played out, that there are, in fact, these seven kingdoms that are very intimately tied with the Bible, in particular, the Jewish people. And they are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome, and this future coming world empire. And, uh, And that fits with what we are seeing here, we're not using newspaper exegesis. We're taking what the Bible says and then applying that to the world history. He even says, uh, five have fallen. One is, well, who is the one that is? Rome, when this is being written. And one is yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Again, it cannot be Rome. Therefore, Rome is the one that is. The one that will come in the future will only last a little while. Rome lasted for upwards of a thousand years. It is not describing uh, Rome.
Next notice in verse 11, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. So I would take that to mean that there are the seven kingdoms culminates in the future world empire, the seventh one. This beast which was and is not and will come again is himself also an eighth. So he's going to come out of, this would seem to be describing, come out of this world power that is in existence, and then he will rule over that. That's why he's described as an eighth and is one of the seven. So he's going to be part of that world empire, and then he's going to rise above the other parts of it to take charge of it. So he's described as an eighth and also uh, one of the seven. And then notice in verses 12 and 13, we get some more details. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So these uh, 10 heads are describing 10 future kings. Some uh, interpreters go back to 10 uh, Roman kings, 10 Caesars, and try to make them fit in with this. But there's no example of history of those 10 kings didn't all exist at the same time, which is a requirement of this. They have to all be in power at once and then give their power to another. That didn't happen with Caesars. They had all the power when they were in the position by themselves and they didn't give it to anyone. This is an indication to us that the world is going to be divided into 10 kingdoms. That gives me an idea for an article in Sunday school. You can go to, uh, you can research the Club of Rome. They, the, they've already done it. The world is already divided into 10 kingdoms. This isn't just a, a New Testament idea. This is uh, something that we see in the book of Daniel also. Thus he said, Daniel seven twenty three. thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it, just like we're seeing here in Revelation. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three kings. So there you go it would appear that the Antichrist is going to, not only is he going to be a part of this one world government, it seems that he's going to be one of these 10 kings. He's going to subdue three of the other kings and kind of take over the whole thing is what is being described there in Daniel 7. Very much like what is described that we just read uh, in verse 10, or uh, where is it? Now I'm getting confused. Verse 11, 
The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. He goes to destruction. He's part of this world empire. He's going to rise above it, subdue it, and take over the entire thing. And notice that the leaders are going to give their power to the Antichrist. Revelation 17, 13. Uh, Probably when he takes out the other three, the rest of them are going to give their power to him. He's going to take it from three of them, and then the rest of them are going to give it to him. They give their power and authority to the beast. And so these are just some of the uplifting details about the coming uh, world kingdom. You and I are, are living it, right? Uh, we're not living this, but we are certainly living in the, the time where these things are being put into place. We're seeing the manifestation of it, if you will. These people are going to give their power to one man, the Antichrist, who is going to be the king over the entire thing. This is a new revelation that John is receiving. All of this, uh, these details are new details. That's why it's called a mystery. It's not called a mystery so that we can just uh, make it mean whatever we want. And so again, we see this king and kingdom being indistinguishable. That's why the beast is sometimes referred to, is referring to the Antichrist. Sometimes it's referring to the kingdom itself. They have very similar descriptions. And oh, by the way, Satan has a very similar description earlier in Revelation because he is intimately entwined with this. This is his kingdom. This is his world in which we are living right now. He kind of has domain here and he doesn't want to give it up. And that's what we're seeing it coming to an end here in these chapters. So this idea of king and kingdom being indistinguishable, you know, like it or not, Joe Biden is the face of America today. He represents us in the world and, and, uh, so that's when you see like the Biden administration and these kinds of things. That's, that's what it is. King and kingdom are indistinguishable, but we don't have a king technically, right? Uh, so in this language, we're seeing the same thing. Antichrist and his king are synonymous. This beast is representative of the fact that Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He rules over this earth. So you may ask yourself, you know, why is there so much evil in the world? Why are governments so evil? Why are they against the people? Why does it seem like our government is against us? Why do they want to shut down our freedom, take away our freedom of expression, take away our freedom of thought? Why do they want to murder Christians around the world? You don't have to look very hard in the news to find that happening. Why do they want complete control over us as our slaves? Well, the answer is quite simple for us. They are being controlled by Satan himself, and they don't even realize it many times. Sometimes they do, I think. Sometimes they don't. And whenever a politician comes along who actually is for 
the people and for to give people their rights and their their freedom while the the system if you will attacks them with everything uh in their arsenal and why would that be because they are satanically energized i don't really know any other way to to say it nicely the the world is satanically energized that's why things seem so awful. That's why the whole world seems to be against God. That's why God is eradicated from public society. That's why businesses go woke. That's why governments force these things on people. They're being satanically energized to bring Revelation 17 and 18 to its uh, prophetic conclusion. But be encouraged because one day in the future, we're going to read about it in Revelation 19. Jesus Christ is coming again to this earth after the world openly worships Satan. The mask comes off the Antichrist. He's revealed as Satan's man and they worship him. Jesus Christ himself will come from heaven one day, and he will eradicate all of this. Everything that's happening in the world, Jesus Christ is going to finally, fully crush it, annihilate it with one word from his mouth. It will come to an end. All the evil leaders of the world, all of everything that is against God will be eradicated from this world when they try to fight against the God of heaven. Personally, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for evil, uh, Satan, every satanic leader on this planet to be eradicated from it. The world will be uh, run by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, when he comes again in the future. And may he come for us. Uh, that's the truly good news is that he's coming for us in the rapture before any of this uh, happens. And that can be today. He won't eradicate evil from this earth until uh, upwards of seven plus years from maybe today. Before then, he will come for you and me and take us to the Father's house. How can I be so sure of that? Because we come again with him, we'll find out in Revelation 19. May that, be, may that day be today that we see the Lord face to face. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that teaches us so much about the future, about you and who you are, the fact that you love us, the fact that you want us to have life with you, and that you have provided everything for us. We just simply need to trust in you and Jesus Christ and your word as it is written to us. And, and uh, I just thank you so much for that. I pray that you would energize us to live in this world that has rejected you and that is in the process of building these things that we're learning about in Revelation. I just pray that we would not be carried away and carried astray by the world and its temptations, but we would be founded fully and completely on your word. And I just pray that you would do that work in our lives. And we just 
praise you and give you all of the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.